0: Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week. On the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about one of the one of the strangest battles that took place during the Second World War: the Battle of Castle Itter. Now, you probably noticed uh, that we don't do a lot of Second World War history on this podcast. A couple of reasons for that. Firstly, half-assed history, obviously, you know, generally focuses on the on the sillier or more ridiculous stories from history, and you know, the Second World War isn't exactly known for its levity. Uh, but secondly, there's just already so much history content out there that deals with the Second World War. It's really one of the most discussed topics in history. And I, I, I'd rather talk about, you know, the history of the toilet or whatever, stuff that isn't getting the the attention it so richly deserves. Anyway, today we are making an exception uh, for the sake of this story because it's one of the few stories to emerge in this period in history that is uh, is is more amazing and, and weird and ridiculous than it is tragic. The Battle for Castle Itter. Is the only recorded battle where American forces fought alongside German forces against the Nazi regime. It took a few place uh, a few days before the uh, the Nazi surrender in May 1945, uh, by which stage uh, you know all order and discipline within German ranks was quickly evaporating. Uh, Castle Itter had been used by the Nazis as a prison to hold high-profile French prisoners that they want to keep alive and relatively healthy. But uh, it returned to uh, the original purpose uh, for which it was built, a a castle uh, to be defended uh, very briefly in 1945 as American and German soldiers defended it side by side along with French prisoners and, and, and Austrian resistance fighters. And when I say high profile French prisoners, I'm talking about like former prime ministers, famous politicians, even a celebrated tennis player was involved as well. And these forces, they made their stand against the Waffen-SS, the, the military branch of the SS, the, the Schutzstaffel, you've probably heard of them, the organization responsible for some of the, the very worst horrors of the Nazi regime, of course, including the, uh, the Holocaust. But uh, this story here, the, the story of the, of the Battle of Castle it, it's, it's it's quite a story, and it's one that's not at all in keeping with the, uh, the horrifically tragic tone of the Second World War more generally. Uh, and i've had it suggested as a topic quite a few times actually uh, by, by quite a few different people I want to thank listeners like phil Lentern and joe w for sending it in so cheers fellas good on you thanks to everyone who suggested this as a topic anyway let's get to it here let's learn about this battle the 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 again the only recorded instance of, of americans and germans fighting side by side during the second world war it's uh, it, it is a very remarkable story so let's get to it here we go we're going all the way back now going all the way back to 1943 Uh, This is when Castle Itter was taken over by the SS to be used as a prison. Um, Now, Castle Itter itself, it can be found near the small Austrian village of, well, Itter, you're not surprised by that, uh, in Tyrol, up there in the snowfields. And it has existed since the 13th century, this castle, and perhaps even longer. There aren't the best records of its its history, to be honest, but we know it's existed since at least the mid-13th century. Anyway, in the 20th century, after the, uh, the 1938 Anschluss with Austria, Nazi Germany took over this castle and, they, uh, and, and began to use it for various clandestine purposes before, in 1943, the SS began to use it as a, as a place to hold important prisoners. Now, this included prisoners that were deemed politically valuable, uh, the ones that the Nazis wanted to keep alive for future use. Maybe they'd be useful as, as bargaining chips or what have you in future negotiations, or whatever. And, as a result of the uh, you know the the esteemed privilege of many of these prisoners here, the castle was outfitted with roomy and, and relatively comfortable cells along with quarters for guards and officers. Now, it wasn't difficult to turn this castle into a prison really, because castles are designed to prevent people from getting in. So it's not always too difficult to reverse that and make it difficult for people to get out. So the castle uh, you know being being well appointed, largely isolated from any uh, any any major population centres, you know they're they're a good track down the road, any of these bigger bigger towns or cities. It was the perfect place to uh, to pop these uh, these VIP prisoners away, uh, you know, where they'd be safe and sound, and again kept in relative, well, extreme comfort. When you're thinking of, you know, when you think of some of the way that, uh, that some of the ways that other prisoners during the Second World War were treated. Anyway, despite it being, you know, relatively comfortable and well appointed, it was still a prison. However. Uh, it was a satellite uh, a satellite of the infamous Dachau concentration camp, meaning that it was under the ultimate command of Dachau's officers and it was staffed by personnel from Dachau. An SS officer named uh, Sebastian Wimmer was put in charge of the castle, and he was given 25 guards under his command uh, to uh, to secure, keep it secure. And these guards were, for the most part, they were older men who'd never really been in combat, you know, rather than sort of crack young troops anything else like that. These are blokes who were kind of being put out to pasture a little bit. It was a cushy old job working at uh, at, at Castle litter for the most part. Uh, and in addition to to Vima and his guards, there were also support staff. Obviously, you know there were there were people who cooked and cleaned and maintained the place, whatever else. And a lot of these are actually prisoners as well, prisoners who had brought been brought in to do menial work and maintenance from the Dachau concentration camp. As for the actual prisoners that were being held there, here's what starts to get really interesting because they're all French, right? And for the most part, they're all political prisoners, but what these people did before the war there is a wide array of of, of different backgrounds for them a lot of politicians there were some uh, there were some prime ministers uh, there were trade union leaders generals and as i mentioned before <laughs> a tennis player whose name was jean Berotre, right now you would think that these French prisoners thrown together as they had been, you know, a, a, with, with a common enemy. They're uh, oppressors here, the people who'd imprisoned them. They'd, they'd band together as comrades and countrymen. They'd be united in their captivity, seek to support and help each other however they could. But no, absolutely not. The The opposite, in fact. They all bloody hated each other because, I mean, think about it. It makes sense. In their former lives as French politicians, a lot of them had been political opponents, right? The two former prime ministers that had been there, Édouard Deladier and Paul Reynaud, right? They had been hated rivals from the beginning of the Second World War. They had been on opposite ends of the political spectrum as, as political leaders in France, and now they were thrown into the same prison together. They couldn't stand the sight of each other. And both of them detested one of the generals, whose name was Maxime Weigand, right? He was the one who had surrendered to the Nazis in 1940 uh, he was a supreme commander of the uh, of the French forces, and he was the one that actually surrendered at the fall of France. and And, and another general who was also there, Maurice Gamelin, he also hated Wagon because Wagon had replaced him as the French uh, supreme commander before the the fall of France. There's all these like. Political grudges and whatever coming else uh, uh, coming in from before the time they're in prison, but there's oh, there's so many more. It doesn't stop there. Uh, there was a trade union leader there whose name was Leon Jouhaud, right? He absolutely couldn't stand his fellow prisoner Francois de la Roque, who was an anti-communist leader before the war. So, and plenty of other examples. Of this the the atmosphere was acrimonious, to say the very bloody least, Uh, the prisoners quickly separated, sort of self-separated, really, into different factions drawn along political lines. And they spent time together separately. They even ate separately in the dining area. They would all sit in their sort of little factions there like this, uh, you know, not talking to each other. These deep divisions preventing them from uh, coming together, even as prisoners. And they constantly argued and bickered throughout their uh, captivity. They're much the amusement of the guards. There was also a third faction as well, the the neutrals, as they were referred to. Too. This included people like Marie Agnès uh, Calot, uh, who and her husband. She was the sister of the famous Charles de Gaulle. Uh, they, she and the other neutrals, they all sat by themselves at dinner, you know, keeping their heads down, keeping out of the argy bargy as best they could. But despite all these constant political feuds, right? These prisoners, they honestly, they didn't have it so bad. Quite honestly, as I said before their situation was, was positive luxury when you consider the treatment that most political prisoners of the Nazis received. These VIP prisoners, they had cells that were more like guest rooms. They ate very well. They could spend time in the castle's library for entertainment, or they could walk outside within the courtyards where there were fountains or whatever else within the, ca- the castle walls. So they, they, you know, they had a pretty cushy time of it up at Castle Eder. it has to be said. And it was there that they stayed from 1943, when their incarceration began, all the way through to 1945, when the day-to-day routine of the prison slowly but surely began to crumble away. Now, in 1945, of course, as you probably know, the Nazis are losing the war. And it began to show at Castle Itter in the form of reduced food supplies and increasingly scarce fuel. So so much so that often the electricity would just go off completely, and they'd have to use cast, uh, uh, candles and and lanterns to uh, to see inside the castle here. So the the prisoners, just as much as the guards and the officers, they knew that the war wasn't going well for the Nazis. And uh, you know maybe this gave some sort of hope to the uh, to the French prisoners, but certainly it made them worry about what their fate was going to be. And this anxiety was increased in in, in April and May 1945 as SS officers began to arrive at the castle, usually staying for a brief period, maybe a night or two before moving on. Now, they always brought with them a lot of baggage, sometimes at their family members, and they would attempt to take food and other supplies with them from the castle as they left. Now, it was very obvious to everyone involved, particularly the prisoners, that these officers were fleeing. They were attempting to run. They recognised that the war was lost. And they weren't going to go down with the ship. So, there were so many fanatical supporters of the Nazi regime, they fought in th- right through to the bitter end, right? But there were those who were like, well, you know, the war's lost and I'm not going to lose my life as a result. So they were, you know, they packed their bags and, 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 and attempted to flee. And many of them were successful in doing so, recognising how bad their fate would be if they rain, remained behind, caught by the Allies and faced, you know, justice and reprisals for their role during, uh, you know, during the Third Reich. So they fled their posts. Many of them stopped off at the castle, Castle Ita to rest and resupply themselves before continuing their flight. Now, the French prisoners, as I say, they couldn't fail to notice this. And one day, the prisoners actually, uh, a group of them, they met with, they spoke with Vimmer, the SS captain that was in charge of the prison I mentioned before. Now, they confronted him and they said, now, listen here, mate, you're, you're in charge of this prison. You've got all these bloody VIP French prisoners here, these political prisoners. We're about to win the war. You can tell that. That's for damn sure, mate. So you better bloody look after us, and I'll tell you why. Because if anything happens to us now, right, that's not going to reflect very well on you, or indeed on your regime. Once all of the dust settles, that sort of thing. You better make bloody you better make bloody sure you take care of us. Because if we if anything bad happens to us, it's going to be the worst for you. Once the war actually ends, you know that you're losing. So uh, you better quick smart. You know, pick up your act and make sure that we all live through this one. Now, Vimmer. Obviously, they they seem to have done a good job persuading him here. Because Vimmer, he came away from the meeting agreeing to make sure that he looked after the prisoners to the, to the very end, right? He, he, he recognised his responsibility to ensure that he kept the people at Castle Itter alive, so much so that they actually got a, commit, a commitment from him to help them escape if needs be, if push come to shove, Vimmer said that he would actually back them up and try to get them uh, try to get them out safely. To make again, probably looking after his own skin more than anything else was Vimmer, but still, quite a remarkable thing that at the end of the war, that, that these prisoners were able to, able to bully the bloke in charge of their prison into looking after them. But this plan to help the uh, the French prisoners escape here it had considerable doubt cast over it. This plan for Vimmer to look after these uh, these prisoners was really uh, was really cast into doubt here because. Uh, on the 30th of April, 1945, Edward Veiter, right, the commander himself of the, the commander of the Dachau concentration camp himself, the, the 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 bloke who was largely in charge of this entire operation. You remember, Castle Itter was was a satellite of Dachau, so you know it is technically under the command of uh, of Dachau. It's technically under the command of Veiter himself. Uh, he outranks everyone there, Wimmer included, and he rocks up, as I say, on the 30th of April, the same day that Hitler killed himself in, in Berlin. Now, Weiter, you know, unlike many of the other SS officers who uh, would come, you know, copped a feed, had a snooze and then left, Weiter didn't move on quickly. Uh, he actually remained, he settled in at the castle with his wife and children, and it looked like he was going to be there for the long haul. Now, the prisoners, they had heard of Vita, they'd heard of the atrocities that he had committed before leaving Dachau. He'd murdered thousands and thousands, countless thousands, including about 2,000 people just before he left, right? He, he just murdered them in cold blood. And so these prisoners, they worried that he would purge them as well before the war you know, could come to an end. And perhaps because of this anxiety, although we don't know this for certain, he never got the chance. He died on the 2nd of May, just a couple of days after arriving at Castle was He was found dead in somewhat suspicious circumstances. Now, some commentators, they ruled a suicide. He shot himself in the heart, but then that didn't kill him. So instead, he shot himself in the head. Uh, Very common amongst high-ranking officers at the SS, there were a lot of people who took their lives, uh, you know, from Hitler all the way down. Many, many people took their lives uh, towards the end of the uh, the Second World War on the Nazi side of things. However, other other sources indicate that you know it may not have been suicide at all, and he may have been killed by you know someone else within the castle, whether it was a prisoner, whether it was whether it was another guard or whoever else it was. That there 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 are suggestions at least that foul play was involved in this bloke's death. Whatever the case, uh, after he after he was found dead, some of his men, some of Itta's men, they attempted to bury him in the cemetery in Itta, but a priest actually prevented them from doing so. Uh, and so, uh, Vita, who was known as the as the butcher of Dachau. He was actually buried in an unmarked grave, some, somewhere outside the castle, which is very fitting, you would think, for a monster like him. But more broadly, right, once Vito was dead, uh, fearing allied reprisals, that you know, so many SS officers had been fleeing. Vimmer too took to his heels in the wake of the death of Vita, uh Vimmer abandoned Castleita. He left on the fourth of May, and shortly thereafter, the prison guards all followed suit. More or less, just more or less, just leaving the prisoners to their own devices in the castle. Now you'd think brilliant. All right, time to walk out the front door. Back we go to France, and that's that job done. But escape was still impossible at this point because while the officers, while the guards had all fled, the area surrounding the castle was still under the control of the Waffen-SS, the, the military branch of the SS. And, of course, with all the prisoners being French, uh, it would have been very difficult for them to escape to friendly territory undetected. So they were kind of stuck here in the castle, even though they weren't directly under guard. They couldn't just you know walk out of the place and expect to, uh, to get back to France safe and sound. At this point, finally, the prisoners all come together. They put their grudges, their political differences to one side temporarily here and they come together to formulate a plan and try to figure out what they were going to do. They broke into the armory, they armed themselves with the weapons that the Germans had left behind, and then they decided that they needed to make contact with one of the Allied regiments that was in the process of liberating the area. They knew that Americans had made incursions this far into Austria, they weren't too far away, and if only a message could be sent to one of these American detachments— then perhaps their, uh, you know, their liberation would also be at hand if the Allies were able to come and rescue them from this castle. However, it was going to be a very difficult and a very dangerous thing to make it through the lines held by the SS in order to get to the Allies and pass on this message about these stranded prisoners. And at this point, the French prisoners, they accept the very brave, very courageous offer of one of the other prisoners that had been brought from Dachau as part of the staff of the castle. This guy was a, blo- he was a, he was a Yugoslav uh, political prisoner. His name was, was Zunimir Kukovic. Uh, he'd been brought uh, to the castle because he had experience as an electrician. He'd been transferred to ITA to work there as, a, as part of the maintenance staff. And it was he who, again, very bravely volunteered to leap into action and try to save the prisoners who had been left behind at the castle. He said, it's all right, I'll go, I'll find these Americans, I'll, I'll you know set them on a course to you blokes and uh, and hopefully they'll be able to make it and, and, and save everyone's bacon. He left the castle, he walked down to this nearby village that I mentioned before, the village of Itter, and there he stole a bike and rode towards Virgil, which is a larger town about 10 kilometres away from Itter. Now, Virgil was still under the control of the Waffen-SS, and Kukovic didn't realise this, he was actually riding straight towards, you know, very hot water potentially, if he was, if he was to be caught by the Waffen-SS, he'd be, he'd be, in, he'd be really up at here. But, by a stroke of good fortune, he instead ran into a different group of German soldiers. Despite many SS officers and soldiers recognising the war was lost and abandoning their post to flee, many still remained behind to fight to the bitter end, and, and Kukovic was very lucky to avoid the, the, the Waffen-SS soldiers that were still in Virgil, still garrisoning the town and still loyal to this crumbling regime. Instead, he ran into this other group of German soldiers, they say, a contingent of Wehrmacht soldiers, the Wehrmacht being the, the regular German army. However, they owed their loyalty to the Austrian resistance. They were very ready to surrender. They uh, were afraid of uh, running afoul of reprisals, not from the Allies, but actually from the SS. And they were doing what they could to protect the town of Virgil from the SS. They were, in effect, you know, doing what they could to resist the Nazi regime, even in the dying stages of the war. You may have heard of some of the horrible fates that the Germans suffered at the at the hands of the SS towards the end of the war, very grim indeed. Anyone suspected of desertion was summarily executed, either you know, they were shot or hanged from lampposts. And towards the final days of the war, any man, any adult man who was who was deemed capable of holding a, a gun and refused to fight was liable liable to be branded a traitor and again hanged in the same way from, from just a lamppost on the side of the street. So you won't you may not be surprised then to learn that this detachment of Wehrmacht soldiers uh, after seeing some of these atrocities that the uh, the SS had committed here, had switched sides, had joined the Austrian resistance, and uh, under the under the leadership of a bloke whose name was Josef Gangel, right, they had uh, they'd thrown in their lot with the Austrian resistance, and they were doing what they could, as I say again, as I say, to protect the town of Virgil from the SS. Anyway. Kukovic, right, he he gets to Virgil and he runs into Gangel and his men, uh, fortunately for him. And when Gangel heard about these high-profile French prisoners being held nearby, he realised that he had to do something. He realised he had the perfect opportunity. Maybe there was a little bit of self-interest involved here. Maybe he realised that you know this very valuable information once delivered to uh, to the allied forces would perhaps result in uh, in more favorable treatment for him and his men as they demonstrated that they weren't loyal to the nazi regime if they were able to surrender to the allies with you know uh, a, a bit of intel like this it might go a little better for them but uh, even if even if we put his self interest aside because he does acquit himself very well as a as a as a hero of the austrian resistance gang, as you'll see in, in due course uh, he recognises that this information has to be passed on. He has to get it to the Allies, and so he springs into action. I mentioned before that he was keen on surrendering. He certainly was. But now, armed with this intelligence, he, he really did renew his attempt to find a way to surrender to the Allies. And uh, as a result, what he did, he did two things. He firstly sent Kukovic off to Innsbruck, right, which is a larger Austrian city it was about 60 kilometers away. So he said, Kukovic, mate, you get on your bike, you go off to Innsbruck. Innsbruck had just been uh, captured, just been taken by allies, Allied forces, and so he sent Kukovic off there to uh, to seek help. But he himself, he got into his car. He uh, he loaded a bunch of soldiers, uh, a bunch of his his soldiers up with him, and he headed to the nearby town of Kufstein, right, hoping to find some Americans there that he could he could personally surrender to. So he, drove, he drives off to Kufstein with a small group of soldiers. He flies this great big white flag from the car as they enter the town. And sure enough, Kufstein had been taken by Americans. And Gangel he met with their commanders. He told them of this, uh, of, you know, the story of these French prisoners uh, that were in this castle. And later afternoon, as a result of this meeting, US First Lieutenant Jack Lee was put in command of a rescue effort for these prisoners. He was given two tanks, a small detachment of American soldiers, and... He was also put in charge of Gangel himself and the German soldiers that had surrendered as they agreed to come with him and and, and attempt to you know help these uh, these prisoners make their escape as well. He was ordered to return Lee was ordered to return to Virgil with these tanks that he'd been given. there were two tanks one was called besotten and Jenny and the other one was called Bosch Buster and uh, and he headed off with these two Sherman tanks followed by Gangel and his soldiers as well they came in tow. Now at this point, Along came another stroke of luck because, by the time that this contingent of uh, of odd bedfellows got back to Vogel, the Waffen SS men that had been stationed there had left. They'd actually they'd abandoned the town. So as a result, these Allied forces they were warmly welcomed into the town by the Austrian townspeople, the remaining German troops there who were you know all too glad to see an end to the war and 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 real resistance to the remaining SS forces that were in the area. So. The, uh, the, the, the German, the American troops that made their way back to Virgil, again, got a, got a very warm welcome. Lee set up defences around Virgil to protect it in case the SS decided to come back and then turned his attention, finally, to Castle Itter and an operation, a, a rescue operation. Now, by this stage, obviously, it's getting late in the day. Evening was coming on, but Lee decided that he still needed to make it to the castle before nightfall, and so he said he was going to slowly and carefully make his way up to the castle in an effort to liberate its inhabitants safely. He was worried about remaining SS forces in the nearby area, and uh, you know, as he'd left a sizable amount of his detachment back in Vogel, including one of the tanks, he was on alert as the remainder of them they finally set off. It was him, a handful of other Americans, and Gangel and all of his German troops And they took it very carefully, Uh, and it was good that they did, because on the way, they ran straight into a contingent of SS SS troops who were in the middle of setting up a roadblock on the way to the castle. Now, thankfully, these SS troops, in the middle of setting up the roadblock, they were ill-prepared to fight, and Lee, well, I mean... You know, he's driving a bloody tank down the road, wasn't he? So, it wasn't long before the SS troops they took to their heels. The ones that didn't, uh, that, that weren't immediately killed there, they ran into the forest. They, they fled from Lee and his small force, and you know, the Americans the Germans they were able to uh, continue their way up towards the uh, up towards Castle Eta. And uh, while this, you'd think, oh, that's good news. You know, they managed to break down the roadblock before it was set up. They managed to to put these uh, these SS troops to their heels. It, it did show, unfortunately, the, that the SS still hadn't abandoned the area altogether, and as Lee and Gangel and the rest of them uh, arrived at Castle Ita, they were still very concerned about an SS counterattack. But I'll tell you this, after they arrived, the French prisoners, to make, them, make matters a little worse here, the French prisoners weren't exactly overjoyed to see them. I don't know if they had, a, had an inflated sense of their own importance here, but apparently they had been expecting, you know, a huge rescue operation, military contingent, tanks, guns, hundreds of soldiers. But what they got instead was a single tank with a couple of Americans and a, and a truckload to their disbelief of German soldiers from the same side as those who had imprisoned them all this time. Gangel had a fair bit of work to do here in order to, uh, you know, explain the situation to the French prisoners, to assure them that he and his men had, had surrendered to the Allies and were now there to assist them. So he's going around, you know, trying to win them over with his words, trying to be diplomatic here as Gangel and, and, and make sure that the French are all, are all on side with him. While Lee, on the other hand, took a very different tack indeed. He was all business. Lee recognised that they were still under threat. They were still in danger here at the castle. And so he set about, right, giving orders, readying defences at the castle in case the SS come back and, 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 you know, decided to attack it. They couldn't leave. That wasn't an option for the, uh, for the, for the Americans, for the Germans or for the, uh, the French prisoners here. And the simple reason for that is there was no way to safely transport all the prisoners. They didn't have the vehicles for it, and there was no way that they, you know, could walk back to Virgil in the middle of the night through an area where the SS was still active. You know, this was less than ideal—a midnight hike through the, through forests that were potentially crawling with SS. So, I don't know if the US Army has ever trained its troops in the art of medie- medieval siege warfare. But this is where Lee... This is kind of the situation that Lee found himself in here, right? This is, this is what he had to deal with. He now had to prepare the defence of a literal medieval castle from potential attack rather than, a, you know, attempt evacuation, which at night an unfamiliar probably occupied territory at a large, large force would have been reckless and, and foolhardy and potentially suicidal. So instead... Lee orders his troops to batten down the hatches. Castle Itter still had its thick walls. It still had just a single gatehouse. It was easy to defend as as an entry point. And Lee had a tank and a group of determined fighters, not to mention the prisoners themselves, who don't forget had armed themselves earlier in that day by breaking into the armory. So Lee deployed his soldiers. He organized them. He deployed them in defensive positions around the castle walls. He parked the tank, Basot and Jenny, at the entrance to the castle itself. Now, you know, it's hardly trebuchets and boiling oil, but the blokes that were going to, they were ready to make this stand at the castle. They, They were as ready as they would ever be for an attack. And interestingly, the most interesting thing about this whole procedure with Lee going around, barking orders, preparations, whatever else, is that he was accepted and obeyed by everyone, more or less without argument, including... Generals Weigand and Gamelin, who don't they don't forget, they had both been the supreme commander of the French forces at one point back in 1940. And both of them now are being, you know, ordered around by a stocky 27 year old from New York and uh, and just letting him uh, letting him, you know, take charge of the whole operation. But I'll tell you this. These preparations were very well justified and Lee did a very good job of things because just a few hours after night fell at about 11 o'clock on the 4th of May here, troops from the Waffen-SS descended on the castle and attacked. Now, to this day, we still don't know what their purpose there was. They may have been ordered to kill the remaining French prisoners at the castle. This was very common towards the end of the Second World War, the... uh, liquidation, for want of a better term, of many high-profile high, high profile prisoners took place as the uh, as the Nazi regime collapsed. So that, you know, is a uh, is a plausible reason that they could have been there. Or, alternatively, um, those that escaped the roadblock earlier may have uh, reported what had happened. Uh, a counterattack may have been organised as a result of that. Whatever the reason was, the SS, they attacked Castle Itter after nightfall, about 11 o'clock, and Lee's men were now forced to defend themselves. All throughout the night, the two sides exchanged gunfire to little effect really the SS troops they couldn't afo- approach the defended walls uh, with their guards and they definitely couldn't get anywhere near the the guardhouse the, the 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 gate through the wall because obviously there was a tank there so they they really uh, they, their attack was quite ineffectual and the defenders did a good job of holding them off throughout the night but by the time the sun had risen, uh, things were really beginning to change. Castle Litter had held strong until dawn but, as the dawn broke, uh, the SS had used the time, intervening time, to roll up a an anti-tank gun, as well as set up several machine gun emplacements. And this anti-tank gun, which was hidden away from the, uh, the defenders in a spot that they couldn't see, began to bombard and pulverise the defences. And particularly, they went after Basot and Jenny, this Sherman tank that was defending the entrance to the castle. Lee's tank had done a very good job of keeping the SS troops at bay, but the anti-tank gun made short work of it. It actually just blew it to pieces. And with the tank out of the way, the SS now pressed their attack. They outnumbered the, defenses of the, the defenders of the castle quite significantly. There are only 30 or 40 defenders to the, you know, 150 to 200 attackers here. But the American and the German soldiers on the wall, they did their best to hold off the attack. And even some of these French prisoners, they took to the walls to shoot the on- oncoming SS troops as well. The defenders continued to hold strong, but they knew the time was against them. They had limited reserves of ammunition, and the SS attack was relentless. So Lee recognising that he had to do something here, but he began to plan a retreat for the defenders away from the walls. Much like a medieval force might have done centuries previous, he planned to withdraw his forces into the castle's keep and hold there, conserving what little ammunition they had left, with hand-to-hand fighting in doorways and stairwells and other choke points like that. But then, as they were drawing up these plans, as they were fighting this increasingly hopeless battle on the castle walls... The phone rang inside the castle, and on the other end of the phone line was none other than US Major John Kramers, who was quickly put in touch with Lee and had some astonishing news for his counterpart. Kramer explained that he was in Virgil with a contingent of allied forces. They were ready to reinforce Lee at Castle they had, They had, you know, guns and tanks and all the rest of the stuff they would need to, uh, you know, to break this siege, if you want to look at it that way. But where had Kramer's come from? How did he know of this situation at the castle in the first place? What was he doing calling Lee and say, listen, mate, we're on the way? The way that Kramer's found out about the situation at Castle, at castle Ita was because of our mate Kukovic, the Yugoslav prisoner that had been sent off to Innsbruck on the on bicycle by Gangel way back before. Kukovic had gotten his bike. He'd ridden towards Innsbruck, but he'd stopped halfway when he ran into Kramers, right, who very quickly put together a group of U.S. soldiers in jeeps and trucks and had sped back towards Virgil and Ita in order to, uh, to try to save these prisoners at this castle. Kramers had arrived in Virgil. Uh, and they were prepared to, you know, come even further, keep going to Itter to join the fight, but they didn't know the way. They needed a guide to help them find their way from Virgil to Itter and then from Itter to the castle itself. And at this point in the castle, as this conversation is going on, as the people inside the castle recognise that this was probably their only way to survive this ordeal they're going through, Jean Barotre stood up and very bravely volunteered to jump the castle wall, slip away, run all the way to Virgil, meet the reinforcements, and guide them back. Now, this was a very dangerous thing to do. It was a very brave uh, thing that Barotra, you know, volunteered himself for. But the plan was agreed upon. There didn't seem to be any other offer. And Barotra, you know, as a former athlete, perhaps he was uh, a very well suited for this, uh, this dangerous job that required him to be so fleet of foot. In any case, he courageously jumped over the castle wall, he fled into the surrounding forest, he managed to avoid the people that pursued him, he he, he shook off his pursuers, escaped the SS soldiers that ran after him, and he made it to Virgil and met with Kramer's. Kramer's had a sizable detachment of men, tanks, other vehicles, all sorts of stuff in Virgil. It had been bolstered, of course, by the, the people that Lee had left behind. You remember that Lee had uh, had, had kind of garrisoned Virgil against the, uh, the SS in case, in case they returned. And so now Kramer was put in command of all these people. Barotra led the way. And, uh, and, and these, these vehicles, these soldiers, these tanks, including the Boschbuster, Buster, wasted no time in speeding out from Virgil towards Itter, towards the castle, with Barotra at, as their guide. And at around three o'clock in the afternoon, on the 5th of May, these reinforcements, they rolled up on the castle, just as the SS were repositioning their heavy guns to blast their way through the castle's gatehouse. Trapped between the castle walls and these overwhelming reinforcements, who obviously opened fire as soon as they were inside of the battle, the SS troops had no choice but to drop their weapons and flee or just surrender. Many of them weren't able to make it away. And that was the end of the battle of Castle Itter, A, uh, an 11th hour relief effort from Kramers and the other men that he came with, saved not only the French prisoners, but also the brave soldiers, both German and American, who had fought and put their lives on the line in order to save those people who had been imprisoned in the castle for so long. The Allies took no fewer than a hundred of the SS soldiers as uh, as prisoners as they liberated the castle, and then began to evacuate the prisoners and take account of the dead and the wounded. And sadly, four Allied personnel had been wounded, and one man had been killed. And it was Josef Gangel, the surrendering German officer, who died a hero. He was shot from a distance by an SS sniper as he attempted to move the French prisoners to a position of greater safety inside the castle himself, and tragically lost his life in bravely resisting the Nazi regime that he had previously, of course, been a part of. But for the remainder of the people at Castle Itter, it was a happy ending or as happy an ending as you could reasonably hope for in a situation like this the french prisoners they were loaded into cars driven back off to innsbruck and later on quickly repatriated to france they arrived back there in, in paris on the 10th of may both edward de ladier and paul reynaud the the former prime ministers they returned to politics although uh, maxime Weygand and maurice Gamelin, the generals they never returned to the battlefield. Nor did Jean Barotre return to the tennis court. I mean, he's well into his 40s at this stage, although he was later inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1976. Jack Lee and his American troops, they were sent back to Kufstein, as indeed were the remainder of the surrendering German troops who were held as prisoners of war. And Lee went on to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and later received a promotion from First Lieutenant to Captain. As for Josef Gangl, His death wasn't forgotten, and today, in Virgil, a street bears his name, honouring his sacrifice as a hero of the Austrian resistance. And it was only a few days after the Battle of Castle Itter, of course, on the 8th of May, that Germany's unconditional surrender was signed, and the war in Europe came to an end, although, of course, the, the war in the Pacific would continue until September. The Battle of Castle Itter was one of the last battles fought in the Second World War, and also one of the strangest seen throughout its entire length. As I mentioned, it's the only recorded instance of American and German soldiers fighting together during this conflict. Gangel's troops are amongst the brave few who threw in with the resistance against their own Nazi regime, and Gangel himself paid the highest price for doing so. And ever since all this took place in 1945, the Battle of Castle Itter has remained one of the very strangest chapters in the entire history of the Second World War. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Battle of Castle and As I say, we don't do a lot of Second World War history on this podcast. That is is a deliberate choice. But it is nice to get across something like this, you know, a a story that has... uh that's a little different to many of the others that you might uh, you might expect to have come out of this uh, you know, this this enormously tragic period of human history. Anyway, I do hope you enjoyed it was certainly good fun to get across and thank you once again to the people who sent it in uh, as as a topic suggestion, uh in particular Phil Lantern and Joe W, so uh, cheers very much to them. If you'd like to do the same halfushistory.net there's a contact form there you can find all the episodes whatever else and of course the the feed for the podcast anchor.fm. Slash History. Thanks to the people at Anchor for hosting the podcast. Um, outside of that, if you want to support the show, of course you can. Patreon.com slash Half us History. All the, uh, the usual nonsense there. If you want to uh, chuck a couple of dollars my way each month, you, month you'll get access to uh, all sorts of other content, bonus content. You get uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, uncut episodes, show notes, uh, early access to episodes as well, what, what have you. And uh, a very big thank you to all the exalted Patreons who support me week in and week out. Thank you so very much for the money. Uh, that's it. For this week, thanks for listening. And of course, thank you to those of you who are uh, spreading the good word of half Hour History. Certainly do appreciate that. Got to get those numbers up as ever. Leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Wouldn't have it any other way. This one comes to us from Abu Ben Adem. Uh, we talked about escaping uh, Germans, escaping Nazis at the end of the Second World War. And Abu Ben Adem's got a good question about them. At the end of the Second World War, why were all of the grammar Nazis allowed to escape?